Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Uh, Rick Stengel, the author of Information Wars and the former Chief Marketing Officer of the United States of America. <laughs> At least, Rick, that's how you introduce yourself in the book. What, what, what did you do as the Chief Marketing Officer of the United States? Quite so, a title. A, quite a title. Well, the, the real title is Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, the second longest title at the State Department. And I, that basically is the soft power end of government. It's about marketing the USA. That is the traditional nature of the job. The public affairs part is spokespeople, and there's spokespeople in every embassy around the world. And in the 50s, it was a kind of marketing America around the world when there was this great competition between the free world and the, and the, during the Cold War. Uh, and what years were you at the State Department? I was there during the last three years of the Obama administration. And I read somewhere that you had this job longer than anybody else. <laughs> Uh, people haven't stayed in the job very long. In fact, it's not a very old job. Is that a compliment or were you dumb enough to stay there for three years? You know, even that isn't very long by government standards. The job was only created in 1999 and and the longest person before me was just about two and a half years. Uh, And of course, many people will know that before you were the chief marketing officer of the United States, you were amongst many things, the uh, editor-in-chief of Time magazine. Why'd you go into government? Why did I go into government? I believe in public service. In fact, one of the issues I started when I was editor of Time is the case for national service. And I used to campaign every year for people going and doing some kind of public work. And I always knew that I would do it eventually. And I kind of run to the end of my term at Time. And I was a very big fan of uh, Barack Obama's and and they asked me to come in. It's kind of weird that you're a, a fan of public service because, at least according to your book, or the way that government is portrayed in, in your book, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, government is profoundly dysfunctional and slow. <laughs> uh, that's true, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to improve it or, or, or go into public service. I still found it very empowering to stand behind the flag, as, as somebody said. And, and yes, I found government to be slower and bigger and much more inefficient than I had ever imagined. In fact, I used to tell my conservative friends, you should be in favor of big government because big government makes nothing happen. So, but I still wouldn't ever urge anybody not to go into public service because of that. So you were the guy doing US soft power and you happened to get involved in politics at a time where America, like it or not, was dragged into a soft war, the information war. What happened? 
on this spectrum between soft and hard power, there was an entity that was a hard power entity under me, which was CSCC, the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications, which was created under Hillary Clinton to combat a terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda that was doing dynamic new stuff on the internet. This yeah, is, I've heard of it. This is pre-ISIS. And so I got interested in the information war because of that group and because of the rise of ISIS. And then we saw the rise of, of Russian disinformation at almost the same time. Because just as ISIS was coming to the fore, that's when Russia annexed Crimea. And we saw this tsunami of disinformation around that. Rick, connect up the crisis of democracy in the West, or maybe you disagree there's a crisis, at least um, some of the issues or problems of democracy in the West with this information war. So I'm a kind of American information exceptionalist. Jefferson and the framers believed that for a democracy to work, there needed to be an informed citizen. The, the declaration says that, that institutions govern among men and women with the consent of the governed. The consent of the governed is obtained through information, factual information. Democracies, more than any other system, depend on people being informed and people being knowledgeable. So, the, so, so in your mind, the core of democracy is accurate information or the free flowing, uh, the free flow of accurate information. The, the core of democracy is this idea that human beings can govern themselves. And for people to govern themselves, they need information and knowledge to make the wisest decision. And that doesn't even make, no, mean that they'll make the wisest decision. You use the A word, agency. You say that democracy enables human agency. I, I believe that it does. And what undermines human agency is disinformation, misinformation that confuses people. Because again, we're not perfect vehicles for even the, the correct information that we have. And people still make wrong decisions, even with correct information. But when they have disinformation and they're influenced by that, you know they're going to make the wrong decision. So Rick, throughout history, there's been, you know this better than I do, there's been misinformation and disinformation. What's so unique about the last 20 years when it comes to these information wars? Because throughout history, there have been one kind of information war or another. I mean, as soon as there was information, there was disinformation. Uh, as soon as there was knowledge, there was the misuse of that knowledge. You know, when when Satan told Eve that if she took a bite of the apple, nothing would happen to her, that was disinformation. That's the beginning of, of civilization. What's different now with the rise of social media is the absolute universality and instantaneousness of this disinformation. Once upon a time, the disinformation, like the Russians would have to plant a story in a little newspaper in India and then cover it in the Russian press. Now, the smallest tweet can go global almost instantly. What is local is global. What is global is local. That's never happened before in human history. That's the transformational change of social media. The internet, then. The internet. The internet and social media, the, the, the universality, the instantaneousness of it, that's new. Uh, I mean, people love to quote, you know, that, that Mark Twain line that, that uh, you know, a falsehood goes around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes. He said that in the 19th century, before there was radio. A lot of people trace today's sort of history of democracy from the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. But... 1989, of course, was also the year that Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in Geneva. Uh, when historians look back at 1989, do you think that the invention of the internet in terms of the challenges and problems of democracy in the 21st century, that will seem more important than the fall of the wall? 
or will these two things be connected? I think they're connected because while Tim Berners-Lee was inventing the internet, there was a KGB officer in Dresden in 1989 looking at the fall of the Berlin Wall and thinking, it didn't fall with a single bullet being fired with a single missile. The Soviet Union had spent billions and billions of dollars on weaponry and it fell because of what? Soft power. That was the lesson that Putin took from the fall of the Berlin Wall. And when he became the head of Russia, he tried to marshal Russia's soft power. He, he took over the television stations. He started creating television stations and he basically transformed old style Soviet active measures into new style modern Russian disinformation. Rick, I know you met Putin uh, in Russia when Time mm -hmm. awarded him Man of the Year. Mm -hmm. uh, person of the Year. Person of the Year. Um, although he probably thinks of it as Man of the Year. <laughs> um, Manly Man of the Year. <laughs> uh, was that the conclusion you have about Putin as a, as a KGB officer in Dresden in 89 and learning the lessons of the fall of the war? Was that something that you... Um, have derived from your meetings with Putin and your analysis and your reading of Russian, of contemporary Russian history? Well, I mean, from even what he said, he's talked about, he's used the term soft power. If you look at his actions, basically kind of changing the whole media landscape in Russia, getting rid of the opposition, making state media even more powerful than it was under the Soviets. I mean, he by his actions demonstrates the knowledge of how important soft power and media is in this world. And in fact, one of the things I saw at the State Department, amazingly enough, is they were quicker off the mark than we were. When, when the Secretary of State would meet with the Russian foreign minister, they were tweeting about it live. They were tweeting the results before we did. This is on these American platforms. We were slow-footed. And as America's chief marketing officer, is that the reason why they vilified you? They, I, well, yeah, I mean, I took great solace in being vilified by them. It made me feel like I was effective. And as, as people have said, if there are no, you know, if you're firing missiles and there's none coming back at you, then you're not being very effective. So, so is this the new Cold War, uh, Rick? The old Cold War was an intellectual argument about the, uh, about the benefits of Soviet centralized communism versus the, the benefits of liberal democracy. Yeah. Um, is the new Cold War not an ideological conflict, but a conflict about the use and abuse of information? I actually think the information war is way bigger than the Cold War. The Cold War was between two different powers with different visions. The information war is a kind of war of all against all. It's a competition among narratives of countries and non-state actors and everybody for the kind of primacy of their view using disinformation to get to that place. I mean, it's a global conflict. So if I'm a, a, a Russian in this conversation, I would say to you, well, aren't you suggesting then that the Americans are no different from anyone else? You're, 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 you're presenting your arguments about democracy and freedom. They're presenting their arguments about what they see as democracy and freedom. It's a valid argument, but I would say that they also go on both sides of that issue because they're, they're not only arguing their side in a kind of legitimate way, but they're arguing their side through the strategic use of misinformation and disinformation. I mean, what we saw around the annexation of Crimea and the soft invasion of Ukraine, just outright lies about, about the invasion. You know, where Putin said those, were li those little green men weren't Russian soldiers, where they've lied about the support for the troops in eastern Ukraine. They lied about the downing of the Malaysian airlines. I mean, there's a difference, not just in degree between what we do, but in kind. And the Russians are 
willing to do things that I think Western countries just can't and won't do. How high up does the information war go in Russia uh, when they need approval for the, the building full of trolls in St. Petersburg or Moscow? Do you think that Putin and in, in his inner circle not only know about this, but strategize on it? I don't know the answer to that. I think, I think it goes all the way up in the sense that people have permission to do this kind of thing. One of the things that I think made the Russians and make the Russians successful in this information war is it, it's a distributed network. There isn't, it's not centralized. They, the people of the Information Research Agency work on their own. They're like, a, they're like their own publication. They have their own guidelines. They have a mission from Putin and they have a mission to disrupt the West and so discord. And then they can do it any which way they want. I don't think Putin is looking at the tweets from the Information Research Agency every day. In our series, we've had an unspoken debate amongst the people we've spoken to about whether or not democracy is really in crisis. Some people say not really. Some people say yes. Some people say it's a return to fascism. Looking globally, not just at Russia and America and and the challenge of ISIS and ISIL, how would you describe the state of democracy in the world today? It's retreating. Um, the number of countries that are considered democracies has been going down for about 10 years now. There's a return to blood and borders of, of countries that want everybody to look like everybody in the country. They want everyone to have the same heritage. And they have these strong men leaders that are, that are authoritarian. There's a return to this kind of authoritarian personality that people used to talk about in the 1950s. They want a kind of a strong person leader, not someone who's thoughtful or introspective or is even thinking about democracy. I think there's democracies in retreat. And why is that? And I'd like you to try and sort of separate the cause and effect of the information war. Are people longing for strong leaders because um, they're they're sort of suffering from the, the vertigo of all this information? Or is are, are the propagandists in Moscow and um, and Ankara and New Delhi and, and, and Manila and, and, and Budapest, are they the ones manipulating the people? I think democracies have done a poor job of educating people about what it means to be a citizen in a democracy. We've done a good job of educating people about the freedoms of democracy, the things they can do, but not the responsibilities. I remember Sandra Day O'Connor said to me, we're going to pay a terrible price in the U.S., for having stopped teaching civics 40 years ago. And we have paid that price. I mean, you had people voting in America and including a candidate running who didn't know the three branches of government or what the responsibility of a citizen is in a democracy. And that primary responsibility is to be knowledgeable and to participate. And I think we've taken agency away from people. And what people like about that is it's kind of a relief not to have to make a decision yourself. It's kind of a relief not to have to learn about things and to listen to that strong man leader who's telling me what to believe. I mean, we can't blame Facebook for that. We can't blame Putin for that. We can't even blame Donald Trump for that. In fact, I actually think the opportunity for fixing democracy using those platforms and using technology is enormous. I, I think people overplay how they undermine democracy. I think they underplay how much they can do to fix democracy. Why wouldn't Facebook be telling people, here are the three branches of government. Here is your responsibility as a citizenship. 
That's nonpartisan. That's bipartisan. The platforms can do that. Well, they can in a way, Rick, but you know better than anyone that the platforms aren't Time magazine. They don't create content. There are platforms that enable you and I to put our photos of our babies on um, and our opinions. So how could these platforms transform themselves from um, kind of echo chambers uh, to serious publications that will inform uh, a, a civic culture. Well, remember, they started, as you know, using third-party content and monetizing that, not creating content themselves, but using you know, pictures that we took of our kids or cats or whatever it is, and, and we gave that to each other, and then they sold advertising against it. Their whole model was different than the traditional press model, which was monetizing content that they created. Are they publishers? Absolutely, they're publishers, but not in the traditional sense. One of the things that needs to change, at least in the US, is the perception of them, according to the law, as not being liable for their content. So Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. The safe harbor. The safe harbor, and the fact that they're not liable for their content. In fact, it, the legislation was created through, for, with, with good intentions, which is they didn't want the, the companies to censor people too much. But what that did was it gave them a kind of immunity for all of this hate speech and negative content that they have. They need to be a little more responsible, and they also need to become more like traditional publishers, publishers themselves and giving people the kind of content that make them better citizens. Rick, you know Silicon Valley pretty well. You, you said you were an advisor to Snapchat. You've spent some time with Mark Zuckerberg. You, 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 when you were in government, you did a series of meetings with them about the I reliability. Mark, I made Mark Zuckerberg person of the year yeah. as well. Okay. Which year was that? That was 2010, I think. Was that a better, a, 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 a better decision than Putin? <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. um, he wasn't man of the year either. He was person of the year. True. But in seriousness, in all seriousness, you, you know Silicon Valley pretty well. These guys don't really get it, do they? I mean, if you said to Mark Zuckerberg, I want you to use Facebook to make people more responsible as citizens, make them better informed. Of course, he'd nod and smile and say, oh, that's a great idea. But he wouldn't really get it, and he certainly wouldn't help you. I, I disagree. I think he would get it. I think he comes from this earlier vision of the Internet as the great democratization of information, that it actually gave people agency, not only to learn, but to communicate. Every person was a journalist. And so... I think he gets that, and I think he is dismayed by what has happened, and certainly dismayed by the impression that people have that, that the internet, whatever that is, is undermining our democracy. I don't think he wants that, and I don't think the other Silicon Valley companies want it either. In fact, their whole business premise is about people being able to make decisions about the content they, they consume. In authoritarian states, people don't make that decision about the content they consume. In Russia, people can actually consume whatever they want, but they only consume state information. That happens in all of these other countries, too, in China and Turkey, where there has been this strong man kind of politics happening. But isn't there a problem with the Silicon Valley business model, certainly the business model of companies like Facebook and Google, um, where they give these platforms for free and then they make money through advertising? 
I know you're the, again, it's a bit of a joke, the chief marketing officer of America, but you never collected up the data of all American citizens and sold them to advertisers, which is essentially what Facebook does. Yes, but I also think that's where the legislation has to change. The legislation has to err on the side of privacy. And by the way, what a lot of people don't realize is Americans have more privacy protections than Europeans do and than, than people around the world from the government. What they don't have privacy protections from is Facebook and Google that you give your most intimate information to. That we need to be protected from them selling that information. We need to know when they're selling it and to whom they're selling it. There must be much, much more transparency. And I think the, the platform companies realize that too, and they're getting ready for that day. Uh, so let's, let's focus more specifically on the fixes to democracy. If you say the problem is misinformation and the crisis of propaganda on the internet, uh, can America learn from Europe on this? Because the Europeans, and uh, particularly the EU, has been much more active and aggressive in regulating big tech and making, them, making some of these big platforms accountable for the stuff that's published on them. One of the things that changed my perception of how information should be used and could be used was the Charlie Hebdo crisis in Paris. Mm. And I had always been a kind of free speech absolutist that, you know, publish and be damned. Uh, the government can't censor anything that you do. And then I saw the, what happened with, with Charlie Hebdo. And one of the speeches that we don't protect in the U.S. is speech that deliberately leads to violence. And Charlie Hebdo published for the third time a picture of Muhammad on the cover of their magazine. They knew that it would result in violence. Should that still be protected speech? In the United States, that would be protected speech. In Europe, Maybe not. And it made me start thinking that this absolute free speech model that the U.S. has, which is an outlier compared to the rest of the world, is too extreme. The, the platforms are not governed by the First Amendment. They can, they can censor speech on their platform. Why shouldn't they get rid of hate speech and certainly speech that leads to violence? I think that is something that has to be thought about in a different way. It's interesting you bring up Charlie Hebdo because um, their crime, quote unquote, was publishing a cartoon, not information. American newspapers recently, particularly the New York Times, have moved away from publishing cartoons because they're seen as taking offense. But isn't taking offense and being controversial and being edgy, isn't that the core of democracy? And how can we have democracies without cartoons, sometimes even if they even if they inflame sensibilities. But I mean, you're using the word cartoon to suggest that somehow it's something childish or, or like a Saturday morning fairy tale. That wasn't a Saturday morning fairy tale. But it, was a it was a serious polemic, exactly. It was a serious polemic and it offended 1.6 billion Muslims around the world deliberately. Yes, you know, should, do we need to have satire in in? In uh, democracies, but was anybody laughing at that cartoon? Did anybody think it was actually funny? I mean, what it was, it was deliberately provocative in a way that yielded violence. That is the kind of speech that I think we have to think twice about. Uh, yeah, uh, I'd buy that. But uh, Rick, if, 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 if we're not going to allow Charlie Hebdo to put quote-unquote cartoons of, of the Prophet Muhammad on its front page, then we're pretty much going to have to shut down all of Facebook and Twitter, aren't we? I don't think so. I think that was, a, that was a very specialized provocation. I mean, I remember when I was in government when that knuckle-headed preacher in Florida burnt a Koran. 
Yeah. Now, under the First Amendment, that's protected. We protect people burning the American flag. We protect Nazis marching on Skokie, Illinois. But to the billions of Muslims around the world, I don't know that any of them understood why we should protect someone deliberately burning the most sacred object to them. And again, would I, in a perfect world, would I think, yes, they should laugh about it because they know this guy is an idiot. But, but it's not something that is, is well understood or completely understood, and they ascribe the worst motives to us protecting it. That's, that's a danger. As the chief marketing officer for the United States, for 1.6 billion Muslims to hate America because we allow a crazy preacher to burn a Koran, I don't think that's good marketing. One of the core ideas of information in a democracy is this idea of the marketplace of ideas. It comes from John Stuart Mill and Milton. And Justice Holmes wrote about it in a famous free speech case, which was this idea that the truth will win out in the marketplace of ideas. It's a lovely thought. I've always believed it. But now the marketplace of ideas is changing. It's a different kind of market. That was a much more idealistic view that somehow truth will win out over falsehood. With the rise of disinformation and with the instant example of it all around the world, the truth doesn't win out in the marketplace of ideas. There's a wholly different market. And so we have to think about it in a different way than we used to think about it in the 20th century. So you believe in this absolute idea of truth that there could be a winning out? I, I actually don't. Uh, what I believe in is media literacy. You know, I used to say in government, we don't have a fake news problem. We have a media literacy problem. People don't understand information. They don't under understand the provenance of information. They don't understand how to tell the difference between something factual and not factual. That's a problem. We need to teach that in schools. That needs to be taught like we teach mathematics and writing. You think that could solve some of the, the problems with online propaganda and I, lies? I think it would solve a lot. I mean, lots of people, including Mark Zuckerberg, think that AI can solve 80% of the problem. Let's even just suggest that they're right about that. But individual agency, individual knowledge of how to separate fact from fiction, what goes into a story, could, could do the last 20%. In fact, one of the things that, that I believe is that is that media entities, journalistic entities, need to be much more transparent about what they do. When you publish online, you can publish the full text of the interview. You can publish all the research you can do. That would help inform readers like, man, gigantic amount of work went into this. I mean, the, the, the writer checked it. You know, he had two or three sources for everything. Uh, she did all of this research. I mean, right now, we present stories like a cake that you order for dessert and, and we don't see how it's prepared. I think people should see how it's prepared. So that is a new role for newspapers rather than as um, sort of uh, as, as, as platforms for information. They also become teachers. I, I think that's I, I always thought in my role as a journalist, that I was a teacher. I was I was educating people about something that was important. And their role, too, is to even teach people how to think about things. So if you see how a story is constructed, it helps you understand the importance of that kind of journalism and, and why it's something to be trusted as opposed to something not to be trusted. This is all very well, Rick, but um, just as the Internet uh, it sort of triggered the rise of disinformation, it's also killed a lot of newspapers. I mean, time is not what it was. New York Times and Wall Street Journal doing okay, 
but we've seen regional newspapers decimated. So uh, realistically, is this going to happen? You know, I'm not a sentimentalist about, about this. I mean, when I think back, well, why did every newspaper in every American city in the 20th century have a correspondent in Paris? Well, because the story from Paris, if you're reading the New York Times, you couldn't read it in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you couldn't read it in the Chicago Tribune, you couldn't read it in the LA Times. There was no internet. There was no way of a consumer doing that. Now, do you need it? Every newspaper need a Paris correspondent? I can read French newspapers on my phone. I can read what the New York Times correspondent says. There's, there, the technology made a lot of those newspapers necessary because people didn't have access to information. Now they have access to much more information. So yes, of course, there's a lot of disruption in the field. And there's much more access to information. I mean, you know, a kid in, you know, Vanuatu can read the entire contents of the British Museum Library on his phone. That's a remarkable thing in, in human history. That's a tremendous benefit. And in some ways, it way outweighs the, the loss of certain, of certain publications. Where are we in the narrative of disinformation, Rick? Um, you, you, you were the first uh, government official to really understand this and introduce Twitter and Facebook to Washington, D.C. Um, are we in the beginning of the beginning when it comes to fighting disinformation? Does something really, do we have to have a, an Exxon a Valdez data crisis, a, a Chernobyl to really confront this? Or can the government, I mean, it's not your government now, but even the, the Trump government, can it confront this? And is it confronting it? Is something enormously catastrophic gonna happen before we really get this? Or are we beginning to address this issue now? I think we're still at the beginning. I'm a skeptic about the role of government in the entire information war. I mean, one of the things I saw in Washington is that people, when they're against something, they put the word counter in front of it and they think they're doing something about it. So they did counter disinformation or counter terrorism. That doesn't really do anything. The problem of government doing something about it is basically government is the least qualified person to rebut a negative narrative to most of the viewers because they question government as it is. To me, one of the really big challenges is this intellectual philosophical one, which is people always think, yes, if there's wrong information or disinformation, you need to counter it right away. Well, one of the things that social science shows is that people absorb the negative or wrong information more deeply than they absorb the correction. The correction comes too late, even if it happens instantly, and there are what psychologists call belief echoes. So when somebody retweets a Donald Trump tweet to correct it, they're making a larger impression on the person who's getting it by having that Trumpian disinformation in the original tweet. So this idea that, you know, we also saw in this notion of the marketplace ideas that a good idea or a correct idea can drive out a bad idea or an incorrect idea may actually be wrong in terms of the cognitive way that our brains work with information. It's just this briefly stand up for John Stuart Mill, not that he needs me to stand up for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but wasn't Mill's argument in On Liberty and, and still the core argument of democracy, it's not so much the idea that truth will will out in the end, but that it's always important to, 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 to empower people to articulate ideas that are unpopular, minority opinions. And isn't the crisis of democracy today that 
um, these sort of neo-authoritarian leaders have reintroduced the, the idea of majoritarianism. And not only are they saying that they're right, but they're arguing that people who don't agree with them, who may indeed be in the minority, whether they're gays or ethnic or cultural or religious minorities uh, or political radicals of one kind or another, that they don't have the right to speak. So isn't the crisis of democracy today the crisis of majoritarianism? I, I do agree with that. I mean, I think the whole American Constitution is basically designed to protect the minority point of view. Remember, it was a country rebelling against the, the majoritarian view of a king of England where people couldn't really object. So, so the Constitution protects free speech, particularly the free speech of dissenters. And I think the problem of these authoritarian leaders is they do want a kind of major, majoritarian vision where they try to suppress the minority point of view. And to me, again, the, the beauty of the internet, the beauty of these platforms is that people have a soapbox in a way that they've never had in human history. There's no barrier to entry. They don't have to run off a, a, a you know, newspaper. They don't have to stand on a, on a platform in Hyde Park. They can just tweet something. And that to me is great. And I am still an idealist about, about the, the use of information on the internet and the agency it gives people. So I, I agree with that. So do you think it's a coincidence that the internet may not have been invented, it was kind of half invented in the United States, but its early history has been driven by American companies and American-made technology? And what's the question there? Is it coincidental oh, well. or is it sort of somehow, you know, that the, the Chinese or the Russians couldn't have done it? They may have had the technologists. Well, the, the Chinese and the Russians would never even have thunk about it, right? I mean, neither of those societies are about enabling the person in the street to have a viewpoint, to have agencies. In fact, they repress it. I mean, the Chinese are the, are the leading oppressors of, of kind of individual opinion anywhere in the world. America is the most idealistic country about information. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said, given the choice between a country with a government without newspapers and newspapers without government, I would unhesitatingly choose the latter. We are idealists about information. That's why those American companies created these systems that use third-party content in a way that no authoritarian state would ever have conceived of. I mean, the very idea of it in China would be anathema to everything that that country stands for. So they are American in a kind of small a way about the importance of individual agency when it comes to information. One of the things I got from your book, Rick, is that you, as again, quote unquote, chief marketing officer of the United States uh, uh, in the Obama administration, you learned the power of storytelling and the value of storytelling. Um, to conclude, tell me a story about democracy. Tell me a story that's powerful. You know, one of the um, things that actually moved me when I was in government and is, is on the soft power end of things is under me were all these educational exchanges. And mainly it was foreign students coming to study in America. I mean, there are millions of foreign students who come and study in America. And what I found powerful about it in talking to these students is they would come to the US and we would open the curtain to America. And, and it wasn't so much about, hey, this is the greatest place on earth. I would, they would, people would talk to me, why are there so many beggars in the streets? Why, when I went to high school, did the black students sit together and the Asian students sit together? But they saw that we were 
telling these stories about ourselves, that we were open to our own flaws. That to me is one of the virtues of democracy. And it was something that, that was very powerful. So even if people didn't necessarily identify with America, they saw there's another model to, way, to the way states can be, the way they you can expose your own flaws to your own citizens. And that only makes the loyalty of those citizens stronger. I, that was powerful to me. Give, tell me the story again about 1989 and Putin in Dresden. So when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, there was a pretty low-level KGB officer in Dresden, not a hot spot, who saw this happen. His name was Vladimir Putin. And he saw that the Great Wall that protected the Soviet Union, a country that had spent billions and billions of dollars on weapons, that had basically bankrupted itself building weapons, he saw that the Berlin Wall fell without a single shot being fired, without a single missile being fired. And his conclusion from that was, it didn't fall because of hard power. It fell because of soft power. It fell because people identified with the Western idea of democracy, of being able to make choices for themselves, of being able to have the lives that they wanted. And he didn't necessarily see that as a good thing, but he saw the US and the West as being victorious in building the narrative of democracy. And he realized then that he needed to build a counter narrative. So he was a pretty smart guy, this Vladimir Putin. He was a very shrewd guy. Again, he saw the power, of, he saw the, the uh, he's a very shrewd guy. He saw soft power as something that the old Soviet Union didn't really have. And he wanted to create that capacity for the Russia that would be under him. The first thing he did as president was take over the television stations. And at the same time, he started enabling people to build Russian stations in what the Russians call the near abroad to give the Russian narrative to those folks. He understood the power of soft power and he wanted to get it on his side. Uh, and, and that's a very different kind of authoritarianism than the one Hannah Arendt, for example, describes in her book, Totalitarianism, the 20th century version of extreme authoritarianism. It's in some ways the Putin view um, in many ways, Putin's authoritarianism is more dangerous than the one that Hannah Arendt wrote about. That was just to knock people on the head, not let people make any choices. Stalin and Hitler. Stalin and Hitler. What Putinism is about is to give people the illusion of choice, the illusion of democracy, but yet to control their choices and without making them think that they're being repressed. I mean, you know, I, when we try to create content that would go into Russia, I used to say to my people, look, we don't have any readers there. I don't have any advertisers there because they were able to read Western content, but they didn't want to because they were getting this steady diet of Russian disinformation and propaganda, and they believed it. So it confirmed their already views of their views. You know, one of the things that, that is a problem in this age of disinformation is what's known as the backfire effect, which is this cognitive idea that when you believe in something strongly and you're given counter information by someone you see as an adversary, it makes you even more confirmed in your belief already. That's the people in Russia. When they get counter information about, about Putin, when they get information that Russia annexed Crimea, it only confirms the narrative they already believe. It doesn't dissuade them. I think Putin is the pioneer of this kind of soft power authoritarianism. 
where leaders give the illusion of democracy and freedom to their people, but radically limit their choices. Again, he understands that soft, hard power spectrum, and he wants to enable both in his countries. And I think whether it's Erdogan, whether it's Trump, they emulate him. They think, wow, he's able to have this kind of power and people still like him and support him and still think that they have some freedom. That is, in many ways, the dream of the, of the strongman leader today. There are no strong women leaders. Is it coincidental that all these people seem to be men? I don't think it's coincidental. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's because women see through it. And, and um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, when I was editor of Time, we made Vladimir Putin Person of the Year in, in 2007, and he agreed to an interview. We went to Moscow. From Moscow, we drove out to his dasha outside of Moscow for an interview, and it was meant to be for lunch. He kept us waiting for six hours, so it turned into dinner. And then the interview almost ended right as it began because one of our questioners got his date of birth wrong in, in the question, and suddenly from the end of the table, I heard banging, and Putin in a very angry voice says, how can you get my birth date wrong? You're making me older than I actually am. Fake news. Well, he certainly thought so. It was misinformation, not disinformation, because it was our mistake. And I interjected and apologized and said it was our mistake. And we got the interview back on the road. It was in that interview that he famously said that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He went on to say how people in the West think of Russians as monkeys and preventing you know, this powerful entity from trying to reconstitute itself, which is what he really wanted to do. There were two other things that happened. After the initial interview, we had this great British photographer named Platon going to take his picture. And Platon is this kind of elfin fellow. And while he's taking the picture, his shtick is that he asks, he talks about the Beatles. And just before he takes the picture, he asked the person, what's your favorite Beatles song? Putin had not said a word of English during the whole interview. And when Platon turned to Putin and said, what's your favorite Beatles song? Without missing a beat, he said, yesterday. Not back in the USSR. <laughs> so from there, we went up to this spontaneous dinner, which was a six-course meal, and they, and they gave us the menu. And at the very beginning of the meal, one of our correspondents, who was a Russian national who had had a little bit too much vodka, started asking a very long and detailed question, presuming that, that Putin was repressing religion in Russia. And it took about five minutes to ask the question. And when he finished the question, right at the beginning of the dinner, Putin stood up, raised his glass, made a toast to us and, and the interview, and then walked out without, without answering the question. So when I was at the State Department, I brought my boss, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, out to Facebook to meet with Mark Zuckerberg. We thought about their help in counter-ISIS messaging, which they were doing a lot on already. And we got out to their new headquarters, which is spectacular. Uh, it's kind of this inside-out building, with beautiful garden on the roof. Built on all of our personal data. <laughs> yes, all buried underneath the building. and um, and. Where he meets with dignitaries was this place, I think they called it the aquarium, this big kind of crystal glass box in the middle of this gigantic open floor. And we did talk to 
Zuckerberg about help with ISIS, and he was certainly willing to do that, and they were doing a lot already. But was, what was interesting to me is what he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk about our help and the United States' help in combating data localization laws. The data localization laws, which was first passed by Russia, which is this idea that all the data from, a, from their country has to pass through servers physically located in Russia before it can go to Google or Facebook or Snapchat or any of these platforms. This is this kind of authoritarian digital nationalism, which has gone around the world because all of these authoritarian, authoritarian leaders are thinking, why is the data of my people flowing from my country to Southern California and not flowing into my potentially repressive vaults of information so I can monitor what my own people are doing. That's why they want to have that agency over people's data. And Zuckerberg saw this for what it is, which is bad for all of their businesses, not just Facebook, but every other one of the big platforms. A couple of months into my tenure at the State Department, I was home for the weekend and I got a call from the information desk of the State Department saying they had the Secretary of State on the line. But it wasn't John Kerry, my boss, it was Hillary Clinton. And I thought, how nice this is. She's calling to congratulate me. I've known her for many years. She was supportive of me going into the State Department. And, and the phone rang. I picked it up and I said, Madam Secretary. And instead of congratulating me, she launched into this fusillade about how there's an information war going around the world. We're getting beaten. She said, I remember the State Department is issuing press releases while everybody else is on Twitter. She said, the Russians are adept at this more so than anyone realizes in the what State Department. What year was this? This was 2014. Because Putin had taken a great distaste to Hillary Clinton and thought that she had created these demonstrations against Putin in the 2011 elections. And she also understood that the Russians were very adept at this digital disinformation. And she said, there's nobody at the State Department who understands the extent of what Russia is able to do. And the irony, of course, is this is 2014, two years before she ran for the presidency, where her whole race was upended by Russian disinformation, which they apparently didn't completely see. But she was way ahead of the curve in understanding what the Russians were up to and their abilities and the power of disinformation to alter the democratic process. One of the ways that the, the internet has distorted the use of information is that once upon a time in the old days, for example, when I was editor of Time, people bought an ad next to a story in Time magazine and they knew the quality of that story, they knew they were next to it and they wouldn't be embarrassed about it. But what's happened in the age of the internet is that people buy audiences, they buy young men between 18 and 24. And who knows what kind of content that can be. That can be violent content. That can be pornography. That can be stuff that's silly and junk news because they're buying an audience. They're not buying a brand. One of the things that has changed is that advertising isn't linked to the quality of the work that, that people are doing, but the audience that they're serving. And one of the ways that we would defeat this is by having advertising, which supports the whole internet, supports all of these platforms, is having a more bespoke way of buying advertising, that you're buying advertising next to brands that you know, rather than audiences, and rather than through automated buying, which is, which is in fact oblivious to the content that they're buying ads next to. Is that a, a, an ethical challenge, a technological challenge, or a business challenge? 
I think it's all of the above. And I think if people feel that disinformation is such a big problem, and it is a potentially big problem because it could, under, it could undermine the entire advertising relationship to all of these platforms. Because remember, advertisers always aspire to be like content. They want the validity of that content. They would rather be content produced by media companies rather than the ads that's next to it. So in some ways, that in itself is deceptive because they're always trying to look like that content.